0: Welcome to Weird Sisters, your Discworld recap podcast. Or is it? My name is Manning, and joining me, as always, is Liz. Hi. Denny is once again incapacitated, but we will barrel on through. This month, we are taking a detour from the main Discworld series to talk about another beloved book. That's right. You asked for it. You demanded it. You've already read the title of this episode. It's Good Omens.
1: Applause <laughs> in the background.
0: <laughs> uh, Liz, have you read this one before?
1: I haven't. I hadn't even really heard of Good Omens up until a couple years ago, where I just saw some stuff on the worldwide internet about, uh, like, Azaraphale and Crowley, and then I had like had no idea what they were from.
0: And what did you think?
1: it was fantastic yeah like like Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett are uh, both fantastic writers obviously but like them together it's just like the right like it's the right mix of stuff I think
0: so before we get into it I want to mention to the podcast listeners that we are changing up the structure of the show for this episode if it works we may adopt it as the formula going forward we're gonna start with trivia
1: So, originally published on May 1st, 1990 by Victor Gullanx Limited.
0: I think it's Gullanx. Gullanx?
1: Okay. Good Omens, The Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which is famously the collaborative work of Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman.
0: The two men met in 1985 when Gaiman interviewed Pratchett for the science fiction magazine Space Voyager. In interviews, both Pratchett and Gaiman made clear that the book was entirely collaborative, achieved with daily phone calls and mailing floppy disks back and forth. Floppy disks, wow. They agree that Pratchett did slightly more of the overall writing, mainly because Gaiman was also working on his now-legendary comic series The Sandman.
1: Pratchett and Gaiman had considered writing a sequel, tentatively titled 668, The Neighbor of the Beast, but it never really coalesced into complete story.
0: Bear with me for this next section of trivia because I fell down a wiki hole. The story of Good Omens was originally conceived by Gaiman as a parody of Richmond Crompton's Just William book series, in which an unruly schoolboy named William Brown keeps getting into trouble despite good intentions. Crompton published 39 of these books between 1921 and 1970. Uh, If there's a Just William recap podcast out there, we salute you.
1: Since its publication, Good Omens has been nominated for several awards, including the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel and the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel, both in 1991. The story was adapted into a stage play in 2013 by the Cult Classic Theater Group in Glasgow. In 2015, the BBC adapted it into a radio play with cameos from the authors as a pair of traffic cops. Terry Gilliam has had the script for a movie adaptation ready since 2002. And of course, later this month, Amazon Prime will be releasing a six-part miniseries developed by BBC Studios in collaboration with the production companies Narrativia and the Blank Corporation.
0: Narrativia owned by Rihanna Pratchett, Terry Pratchett's daughter, and the Blank Corporation owned by Neil Gaiman, with a website that honestly deserves to be seen.
1: Yeah? Ooh, I haven't.
0: Yeah, it's weird. Let's get into the summary. As always, provided, at least in part, by the secret extra sister, who's... Around. Don't worry about it. You
1: know.
0: She lives inside all of us. Mm -hmm. We are working on technology to irradiate her, but for the time (laughs) being... No, that sounds way more mean. We love her. (laughs) For the time being, the secret extra sister lives inside all of us. Prologue. The story opens just following Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Crowley, the nefarious serpent of the Tree of Knowledge, discusses the unhappy exodus. Aziraphale, an angel, reveals that in a moment of gentle rebellion against heaven, he gave his flaming sword to Adam and Eve. The angel and demon gaze upon the world as its first storm brews. So diving into it, the setting, it's largely just present day real world, assuming a creationist Christian literalism, which is interesting. It's kind
1: of like a trope at this point but I feel like when this book came out, it was probably a lot more new.
0: I'll take your word for it that it's a rather commonplace trope.
1: Yeah. I know there's this like super popular series of fantasy books where it is like that kind of idea. I've heard they're really good. I don't know anything about them, including the title, obviously.
0: (laughs) Starting characters, Crowley and Aziraphale. What did you think of Crowley?
1: David Tennant was obviously really perfect casting for him. (laughs) He's got the like, right kind of blase and sass about him and obviously he just kind of wants to have a good time and that's what he's after
0: <laughs> yeah if i was gonna pick a different actor and depending on what accents he can do michael b jordan mm. could be could probably do really well in the role
1: yeah he'd be fantastic in it too
0: how to describe crowley he's very much appearance obsessed mm-hmm. or like perception i guess he really likes humanity has this perspective that there's really nothing he can do he and the rest of demonkind can do to humanity that we aren't doing to ourselves he's probably also trans coded i would say like trans male coded yeah changing his name not really fitting in with the family unit that he's supposed to be a part of
1: yeah absolutely i i think that's a really awesome way to interpret his character He's very, he's obviously, like, is very, very different from uh the rest of Demonkind who are actively looking to, like, ruin individual people's lives. But he's just kind of like, I'm just going to hang out.
0: What about Aziraphale? What did you think of him?
1: He's a very amusing character because he just kind of feels like a bit of, like, a, a, while very competent, is a bit of a bumbling fool.
0: I think of him less as bumbling, as more very polite and... Trying to be helpful and not entirely sure how to interact with people.
1: Because Crowley has like a very obvious idea about who he is around other people. Aziraphale still very much feels like he's an angel who's just living in this world and hasn't quite worked it out yet.
0: Very much not keeping up with the times.
1: Yeah, because just like Crowley, he really loves humanity and not because of this, like, idea of good or whatever that they're supposed to contribute to, but because they are the way they are.
0: The impression Aziraphale gives early on in the book is that he's way more bought into the propaganda of heaven than Crowley is to the doctrine of hell. Yes. Which brings us to the next section. 11 years ago, Hastur and Ligur, old school demons, meet Crowley in a park. What do you think of these two?
1: They're obviously, like, supposed to be, like, characters what a demon is supposed to be like these hulking like terrifying beings but who are very committed to what they're after which is like the victory of hell
0: or at least being capital e evil so crowley arrives before we get into it, just one of the most endearing and enduring running gags of the book any cassette tape left in a car for more than two weeks turns into a Best of Queen album. Mm -hmm. And as a classic rock snob, I can get behind that.
1: Yeah, it's a very good choice. Honestly, it feels like in this like Queen renaissance we are kind of in at the moment, it is very good and topical, despite the fact it was written like 30 years ago, which was probably just as topical then.
0: Isn't it that there's parts of the world where Bohemian Rhapsody is has never left the top 10 charts? Yeah,
1: I think that's true. I think it might be like the UK.
0: Probably statistically likely.
1: Yeah, which honestly, why can't we get on board with that?
0: The reason why Haster and Lager are meeting Crowley is because they have brought the Antichrist, and Crowley must deliver it to a nearby hospital to be raised as human. In charge of the swap is the Chattering Order of St. Beryl. What did you think of these characters?
1: They are they're just so amusing. The idea of like these quiet, like stately nuns and then like the exact opposite is who who's doing that for hell.
0: They do serve as the starting point for a running theme through the book that people are fundamentally people regardless of good and evil Mm -hmm. and these are satanist nuns but they're also just suburban soccer moms
1: so it's like yeah the and it's especially like the comment somewhere towards the start of the book and i think this is specifically in reference to the chattering order um about how like there were those like satanists who like found it and like found the devil and all of that and are like zealots about it but like a lot of them are just kind of born into it and it's like they they go do the stuff they need to do but they're not like like exaggerated kind of satanists they're just people who worship satan yeah and i think that's a very amusing choice to be like yeah satanists are very much an established thing in this world but it's really just like any other religion
0: Not a whole lot of attention paid to other world religions, as far as I could tell in the book.
1: Yeah, I don't think anything else really ever came up, which I guess kind of makes sense if you're going to be talking like in a book about like Christianity and how it sees the world. To like introduce like a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jewish character would kind of mean like, do you explain the differences? Are you going to say that those beliefs are
0: wrong? I think it also is. Informed by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, both living in England, which has a national religion. Yeah. For us in America, we like, don't have one, although we are very much indoctrinated with Protestant Christianity. Yeah. Culturally, at least us, <laughs> I don't, or at least me, I don't really know that much about your experience.
1: Yeah, that's fairly close to the truth. So, it was very much part of my life growing up.
0: Although I was surprised to learn a little bit from. Like, making Jewish friends in college, how much stuff that just seems inescapable to me completely passed them by.
1: Yeah, I get that like a lot. Like, um, my mom was raised Catholic, and but she never like raised me or my siblings as Catholic. And so there are like things I hear about Catholicism. And I'm like, that's a thing? How did I not know about that?
0: <laughs> so returning to the story, after the swap, Crowley meets with Aziraphale to discuss the oncoming Armageddon leading to a discussion of what is referred to as the arrangement. Crowley and Aziraphale basically have just become friends over 6,000 years on Earth, which I think is the catalyst for a lot of what people really enjoy about this book, is Aziraphale and Crowley aren't, like, coded as being a couple.
1: They just very much have that kind of, like, chemistry together. And they're like, despite everything, I like hanging out with you.
0: So Crowley and Aziraphale resolve to have a mutual balanced influence on the Antichrist's upbringing, hopefully prevent him from destroying the world, which leads to the upbringing of Warlock. So the sequel is, I think, a glimpse into another version of this story, where the premise of an angel and a demon influencing some important person would be played straight.
1: yeah. The, like, kind of, like, twist, I guess, where it's, like, everything doesn't end up going the way they're planning. And then to, like, at the end of the book, we come back to Warlock and, like, what he's doing. I think it was just, like, a really kind of, like, nice, like, yeah, he was supposed to have all of this. Then he didn't. You no,
0: know, he's still a kid. Interesting side note. That section of the ending mm-hmm. that you're talking about was added for the American release. Really? Yeah, it wasn't in the original publication. Oh wow!
1: Okay. Yeah. They gotta miss out on that. Oh, bummer.
0: So the upbringing of Warlock leads us to Wednesday. Eleven years after the delivery and the curtains open on Warlock's eleventh birthday party, supposedly complete with the best birthday present a boy could ask for—a bouncing baby hellhound.
1: Mm-hmm. Aww. To
0: Aziraphale and Crowley's growing dread. It never shows up, and they realize that they spent eleven years raising the wrong child.
1: Big oopsie there.
0: The party scene is a heck of a thing.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Azir feels trying to do magic tricks.
1: My, like, secondhand embarrassment, it's just like, oh,
0: no. Realizing that they have oopsed, Azir Phil and Crowley rush back to Tadfield. Along the way, they crash into Anathema Device and give her a lift back to her rented cottage.
1: She is, like, very much the character that, like, I love and adore and, like, kind of hope to, like, write in the stuff I work on. She's just, like, she's very much into her thing. She gets that It's not everybody's thing, but she's, like, sticking to her guns about it.
0: She reminds me of, you remember Kiki's delivery service, the painter girl who lives in the woods?
1: Oh, yeah. I think that's excellent, especially with, like, um, the Jasmine Cottage.
0: Anathema, I really love her as a character, and I wish that she got slightly more to do in the story.
1: Yeah, because she kind of ended up just being ultimately...
0: A plot device.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And it's like she just did all the like exposition and all that.
0: A little bit, yeah.
1: That's kind of maybe like a fault with the premise of her character, too, and not just the way Pratchett and Gaiman decided to take her. Um, is that she is the descendant of like a somebody who could see into the future.
0: So Azir, Phil, and Crowley retrace Crowley's steps to the former nunnery, now a management training retreat run by former nun Mary Hodge. Hodge? Hodge?
1: Hodges? I think it's Hodges.
0: All right, Mary Hodges. The search doesn't yield results, but Aziraphale does discover that Anathema left behind her most precious heirloom, a book of prophecy written by her ancestor, Agnes Nutter.
1: Agnes is just a very amusing character. She's like, I know everything. I'm okay with it. I'm like, she just knows that she knows better than everybody.
0: Two quick things. First, I completely forgot eh, to say at the start, but spoiler warning (laughs) for anyone, eh, because this is... uh, like, this is not necessarily a good introduction to the Discworld series, mm-hmm. but it is a book that you will want to read before the end of this. Yes. The other thing, the reason why I included Mary Hodges in my notes as someone I specifically wanted to talk about, the paintball gun into real gun scene. Mm-hmm. Crowley has a line, the way I see it, no one has to pull the trigger. Yes. Now that's how they do foreshadowing, kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So just returning to Agnes Nutter real quick. I think that she's very interesting in the delightfully mad old woman Mm -hmm. vein that Terry Pratchett especially really enjoys. Yeah, We'll meet, I think, a couple, especially of the witches, who fill that same sort of role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we saw a little bit of her kind of character in... Mort, of that one witch who, who is anticipating Mort's arrival.
1: Yeah, and especially how uh, Agnes ends up leaving the world. Yeah. Yeah, she knows it's going to happen, and she's going to prepare for that.
0: She is going to F up some folks. Yeah. Meanwhile, we then join Carmine Zugebur, the suspiciously capable war correspondent to the tabloid National World Weekly, as a peaceful Mediterranean island is tearing itself apart around her. The conflict is briefly interrupted by the world's most intrepid delivery serviceman, bringing her a large sword. Now, we did meet her and her three compatriots in the 11 years ago section, but this is where we get to meet them. As the villains of the piece. This is War of the Four Horsemen. Yeah. So what did you think of War as a character?
1: I think I enjoyed that she is a she in this case. Because it feels like War ends up being kind of like a representation of Wrath. Who is usually more of a masculine kind of idea I think people have.
0: Certainly in the video game series Darksiders, which is the first interpretation of the Four Horsemen that springs to mind for me, war is very much a macho, masculine, like, brick of an entity.
1: Yeah, like, they're the soldier. They're the, like, this, like, warrior. Yes, she's just somebody who's where war is, one way or another.
0: An enabler of war.
1: Yes, exactly. It's like, she's not actually really participating. She's
0: just... Facilitating. Yeah. The fact that she's super sexualized in all of her scenes is, Mm -hmm. like, at least not all of the female characters are. Yeah. Especially the, like, the 11-year-old girl.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank God. Yeah, I think that kind of might have to relate to the fact that she's still, like, a bad guy. Maybe. So I think that's maybe where that's coming from.
0: But anyway, I think we could just summarize that whole aspect as just a, Mm -hmm. and move on. Yeah. We come to Thursday. Everyone in Lower Tadfield knows the Them, the gang of Pepper, Wensleydale, Brian, and Adam Young with his new puppy, Dog.
1: Capital the Dog.
0: I'm sort of being coy about it in this summary, but the book doesn't really hide that the Antichrist that was lost is Adam. Crowley and Aziraphale experience it as a surprise, even though for us it isn't. Let's just go through the, the Them one at a time. Pepper, what did you think of her?
1: Pepper is a very good, spunky little girl. And she reminds me a lot of the kids I know and get to see a lot. And they're always very, very entertaining, but also very, very sure about who they are and what they want.
0: I'm really glad to have you on the podcast, especially for this one, because you work with children and so you understand them.
1: Yeah. Before this job that I'm currently in, where I work at a school, I interacted with kids maybe a couple times a year, so.
0: All right, so Pepper, she's very much the angry girl type. She also is like clearly grappling with femininity in the story. Like it mentions that she buys the same kinds of comics that Brian does with like the superhero stuff, but she also does buy just seventeen.
1: And I think for, like, a little girl in her age, uh, that's, like, very much, like, a common experience, especially if you do primarily hang out with boys. Because, like, I want to be one of the guys, but I also kind of really like these other things that maybe they don't always like as much as I do.
0: Gender is a prison, especially in a patriarchal society. So, moving on, Dale, he's very much the nerd friend.
1: Mm-hmm. He's just amusing because he's so serious. And like how his parents call him like kiddo or youngster or whatever it was to make fun of the fact that he acts like he's like a 40 year old man.
0: (laughs) In contrast with Brian, who is a messy kid, Wednesday and Brian are, I think, have slightly anemic personalities compared to Pepper and especially to Adam. Yeah. One could, I don't want to bog down the whole episode with discussions of gender, but it's like, it's indicative of a lot of stuff that we don't really need to talk about here and now. What did you think of Dog? Because he's given a lot of internal monologues throughout the book.
1: Dog is kind of mirrors like what Aziraphale and Crowley were, were experiencing, where they were like very committed to their thing until they got to like meet humans and were kind of like, you know what? This is kind of pretty okay. I kind of like things this way.
0: He is definitely representing that arc, but also Adam rejecting the plan.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think what Dog does that Fell and Crowley don't do is that we don't get to see those two go through that arc. Like, they've gone through that outside of the book. And so we get a glimpse of what they might have experienced, but through Dog.
0: And so that brings us to Adam.
1: Adam. kind of makes me sad I guess because it's like he's not like he's obviously like very human as people get to really see but he's also very much like people like forget to be mad at him and that he just kind of gets what he wants and he's just like he doesn't get to have those experiences that everybody else does does because he's the antichrist and i think like the idea that like is kind of he's kind of alienated from people and alienated from heaven and hell as a result and so he's just kind of this weird in between
0: that's a really interesting take on it i think that is definitely illustrated in the a digression that they take later on in the book where it's explained that adam doesn't really care about video games Because he just sits down and figures it out and just gets the perfect score. Which is a shallow interpretation of what a video game is. But it was probably more accurate in the 90s. Yeah. Or like the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah,
1: because like when Pong is your reference point.
0: I will say also that the audiobook gave Adam a really like snooty accent that I did not care for at all. (laughs) Like it made him sound really obnoxious. Made him sound like Draco
1: Malfoy. Oh, Okay. Because he's not. Yeah, he's very much not.
0: He's just really full of imagination and going out and doing stuff.
1: Yeah, and I think the the them in general kind of reflect this idea of like idealized childhood. Like they go out on adventures and get in trouble and like go play in like the old mine and all this kind of stuff.
0: That's partially reflective of Adam's powers is that he has an idealistic childhood.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So that chapter brings us to Friday. Friday opens with the cunning businessman Raven Sable. While examining a member restaurant of his Burger Lord franchise, Sable receives a package containing a set of scales. This is famine, imagined as a just a super powerful capitalist, Mm -hmm. which is very appropriate. Yeah. Considering that in the modern world, famines aren't really the result of disease and ruined crops and floods and things. They're the result of food mismanagement and prioritization of womp, womp, womp. (laughs) If you can't tell, I'm not a super fan of capitalism. (laughs) Spoilers. What did you think of Famine?
1: He's really interesting because I think as a default, all of the four horsemen are interesting as characters to see these kind of like, ideas personified but I really particularly like when he is famine in both the way of like not eating enough for like the young woman he meets with an eating disorder who he pinpoints as only having maybe a couple weeks left to live because she's starving to death or from malnutrition where people are eating a lot and they can you can see that they be eating a lot but they are still starving to death.
0: Industries that facilitate and take advantage of bad stuff in our culture regarding food. Yeah. From famine, we return to London to meet Newton Pulsifer. Wage clerk, computer anti savant, and the first person he years to join the Witchfinder army, as he persuades his superior officer to let him investigate the unusually nice weather of Lower Tadfield.
1: He's a very amusing character. Obviously, like he is very much kind of a bumbling fool. He's got the best intentions, but
0: I think I would probably be a lot more kindly disposed towards Newton Mm -hmm. were it not for having to spend some number of my allotment of shurs on Shadwell. Yeah. His superior officer and probably the least necessary character in the story.
1: Yeah, honestly. because like Shadwell could have been a book. He didn't need to be Shadwell.
0: We discuss each character. So we got to talk about Shadwell. Yeah. He's uh, the last remaining officer of the Witchfinder army. And he's a old racist nutter. Mm -hmm. who probably came across as a lot more charming in the 90s when racist old men running the world seemed laughable.
1: Yeah, (laughs) now he's just kind of exhausting.
0: (laughs) For what it's worth, the book does not present him as sympathetic so much as pitiable.
1: I think that's a really good way to put it, especially how he relates to, um, we'll get to her probably as well later. Um.
0: So Newton is heading to Tadfield so that all the pieces are falling into place. It is now Saturday. The delivery man arrives at a disgusting creek, delivering a crown to a man in white. What did you think of pollution?
1: Here's a really interesting take on... Pestilence? Yeah. The idea of like, like as it's even mentioned later in the book, um, like with antibiotics, disease isn't really as much of the same kind of thing that it would have been. And so, we you know, it had to change. And so, pollution.
0: So the delivery man gets pollution, the crown, before making one more stop, Right in front of a speeding car To talk to death mm-hmm. So all of the four horsemen of the apocalypse Head towards rural England Meanwhile, Newton and Anathema meet She explains what's happening Including showing him some of the notes about Agnes's prophecies And they have a questionably necessary liaison Yeah so this is what I was sort of talking about with wishing that Anathema got more to do in the story.
1: Yeah, because it, it very much feels like they just kind of needed like a romantic subplot kind of thing, and they are like, "Oh, here are these, here's this young man and young woman. Look at them."
0: And like a major theme of the book is love, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm just gonna say this now: wouldn't this book be so much improved if you made Newton a lady?
1: Mm-hmm. I'd be done with that idea.
0: But like change nothing else. Mm-hmm. Partially, just what frustrates me is that, from this point on, Anathema is largely just a catalyst to drive Newton's plot forward. Yeah, very much so. She does get a cool scene in the airbase with the stick. (laughs) Yeah. Also, meanwhile, Pepper, Wensley Brian, and Dog are being dragged along for the ride as Adam, incensed by injustice described in Anathema's magazines, begins succumbing to his destiny. So, this scene where Adam is, like coming into his power and just getting the ability to remake the world what did you think of this moment
1: i think it makes sense especially considering adam is a child that like they have this idea of what the world should be and it's very much influenced by what the adults around them tell them that it should be and except adam is a child who has the power to make that true
0: You know, I was listening to a streamer talking a little bit about the whole ideas of morality and stuff in the context of Dungeons and Dragons. But the example that he used was relevant to this mm-hmm. is that apparently kids have an innate sense of justice and like fairness. Mm-hmm. A child not taught any sort of principles of morality and will dislike things being taken away from somebody else. We instinctively have a sense of right and wrong.
1: Yeah, we collectively, like, think, especially as children, care about the right thing. And the right thing is, like, at least, like, not hurting others.
0: So, also, also, meanwhile, Aziraphale has figured out that the Antichrist is in Tadfield and tries to communicate that to Crowley. Shadwell, who has for years been frauding Aziraphale and Crowley for funding, mistakes Aziraphale for a demon and banishes him back to heaven. Which I guess is the real purpose that Shadwell exists to serve in the plot. Yeah. So while that's happening, Hastur and Luger have come after Crowley, who manages to outwit them and starts the drive to Tadfield. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's going to look amazing in the adaptation.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Very excited.
0: So all of the other plots have been interspersed with vignettes of Adam's enormous power reshaping the world.
1: They're really interesting, and I think they very wonderfully show what kind of power Adam has and how the rest of the world kind of just has to go along with it. Even when they don't understand what's going on, even when they can't do anything, it's just happening.
0: A lot of the stuff he's doing is largely benign, albeit with like some amount of crazy consequences and some number of people dying. Yeah people become dead in the passive voice Mm -hmm. so returning to subplot a the four writers of the apocalypse gather at a greasy diner with four hell's angels this is a pretty cool scene yes the trivia meister changing as the writers arrive
1: yeah especially because it's never like super obviously said at least for the first little bit of like okay war is here it's just suddenly like okay there's like war trivia up on the arcade machine now.
0: And I did appreciate that it was revealed that death was revealed as the person playing. Very different character to the Discworld death.
1: He kind of just feels like a cousin of that death, where like they share a lot of like very strong similarities. The death and more, especially, which is where we have like gotten to know death as a character the most, is like very like he's got very much so of a personality. He's not just like duty, duty, duty. Mm hmm. And this death is, does not have
0: that. He goes out for curries. He likes cats. And the death of good omens, or Azrael, is not specifically malevolent, but he's clearly not sympathetic to humanity.
1: Yeah, he's not going to, like, cause death. But it is his job, so everybody should kind of hurry up and die already.
0: So Aziraphale, now bodiless, ends up possessing a number of people around the world as he tries to return to England. He eventually finds a host in Shadwell's neighbor, Madam Tracy, and the three of them set off for Tadfield. yourfield's world tour had some pretty funny moments.
1: Especially when he becomes a televangelist, with the obvious panic that that causes.
0: All of those people around him being like, well, there goes this job. And what do you think of Madam Tracy?
1: I think she is really interesting, and I think she particularly plays really well with Shadwell as... <laughs> difficult as he is mm-hmm. she has like good intentions obviously a little out there but she's also very much like embraces that
0: i did appreciate the scene where she's conducting the seance and is like i don't think she necessarily thinks of it as scamming people mm-hmm. just providing a service
1: because it's like it, it, def- it doesn't feel like she's like extorting these people like she is doing something that makes these people feel better She just also kind of has to put up with it in the process, and sometimes she just wants to hurry it up.
0: Returning to plot Kepler (laughs) 7, the them confront Adam, and he snaps out of his destiny-induced madness.
1: This scene in particular shows just how human Adam is, and how that's where his priorities are, not being the Antichrist. What do you think
0: about it? Well, I have this in my notes as Adam's revelation. And like a major theme of the book is love, especially love that rejects societal expectations. In the case of Newton and Anathema, romantic love. In the case of Crowley and Aziraphale, love for the world. Adam loves Tadfield and his family and his friends. And this scene, realizing what it would mean to remake them, is how he learns empathy for the rest of the world better than Aziraphale and Crowley could have ever taught him. Yeah. Love for the world is something that they have become so proficient with that they can't explain it. It's like when someone's an expert in their field to the point where they realize they can't explain stuff to people who don't already know it.
1: Yeah, it's like they've forgotten the basics of it.
0: So the four riders of the apocalypse head to the Tadfield Air Base, as do the them, Newton and Anathema, Madame Tracy with Shadwell and Aziraphale, and Crowley. There's a kind of fun scene where they all <laughs> stop and ask the same guy for directions in quick succession. The writers of the apocalypse use the air-based communication systems to trigger nuclear war, which Anathema manages to avert with strategic use of Newton's technological incompetence. And so, she does figure it out.
1: I think, yeah, it just relates to Anathema's whole thing is to be, like, the bearer of, like, the prophecy. And that's what she does here.
0: (laughs) Also, just... Like, for as much as the all the stuff around Good Omens, including the fandom about it, focuses on Aziraphale and Crowley, the humans do all the relevant stuff. Yeah. Including the next part, the three human members of the Them confront their supernatural counterparts. Pepper versus War, Wednesday Dale versus Famine, and Brian versus Pollution, defeating the writers finally when death yields without contest.
1: I think that's really the only thing death could do. Like, death is not an actor. He is the result. And so he, he is kind of like the counterpart to Adam. I think like that's really the only thing they could have done.
0: And you could attribute the them defeating the writers to Adam's powers. Yeah. But my take is that the statement being made here is that the will to fight is the source of this victory. Yeah. That's why to me, it's so important that pestilence, which we think of in terms of disease or swarms of vermin, mm-hmm. that one was changed to pollution. That's why famine is a business tycoon, and why war's jobs are about enabling rather than participating in conflict. Yeah. It demonstrates that they are not inevitable forces of nature the way death is, they're the result of human actions and interactions, and powerless if humanity rejects them.
1: Yes, exactly. Because it's like the thing Crowley says, like, he can't tell anybody to pull the trigger. And especially being children who can become like so devoted to an understanding. This is how the world works and this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And just like stick to their guns about it. It's like, I think that's why it works so well.
0: But it's not over yet. Representatives of heaven and hell manifest to confront Adam, who stands his ground against them and, with a little help from Aziraphale and Crowley, persuades both sides to call off the war. It's a cool scene, am I Mm -hmm. right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I did appreciate the line about how maybe if you t- stop telling people that it'd be figured out after they're dead, they'd try and start figuring it out while they're alive. Yeah. That does, I think, resonate with the kinds of atheists who aren't uh, moaning on Reddit all day.
1: Yeah, who are aggressive about it.
0: I can't remember where I heard this, but the proverb maybe about the lesson of the atheist mm-hmm. is To act as though God won't intervene in all human affairs. Yeah. To try and do things for each other without relying on God to take care of everything for us. Yeah,
1: which is a very interesting conclusion to come to in a book that is about like Christian mythos.
0: And where it's implied that the maneuverings of God are why everything transpires the way it does. Mm -hmm. So we've come to Sunday. The danger has passed and the world is in equilibrium. Our beloved characters are able to enjoy the first day of the rest of their lives. Newton and Anathema enjoy a quiet morning, interrupted by the delivery of a new tome of prophecies from Agnes. And it's kept vague about if Anathema decides to keep the the new book, mm-hmm. which was, I did appreciate just further nice and accurate prophecies. The saga continues. Uh-huh.
1: It's, a, it's a very grandiose title. <laughs> Thank you. That's
0: like very much the like contemporary sequel naming convention. <laughs> yes. Newt, uh, saying to Anathema, like, do you want to be a descendant forever? A professional descendant forever? Mm-hmm. It's probably the correct way to go with her plotline. Yeah. Just like, I don't know, I just don't have a lot of patience for Steves.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know the type I'm talking about? Like, short hair, maybe a little stubble. Like yeah. Cis men, like, 20s to the 30s. Yeah. Just Steves.
1: You're like, typical video game protagonists.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I do appreciate it being open-ended, but I really want Anathema to kind of like come to the conclusion that she doesn't have to know everything, and she can just live and not spend her life picking the secrets of her like far-off ancestor.
0: I'm only just realizing now as we're discussing it, Anathema largely represents looking to the past for answers, and Newton with his obsession with computers represents looking to the future. Yeah. I'm definitely more on Newton's side in that whole discussion, but anyway, Azir, Phil, and Crowley meet in St. James Park to discuss the nature of ineffability and lunch, which is a, f- a fun scene.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially the like small cameo of death in there.
0: I didn't like, find interesting Crowley's saying, I think the real big one is going to be all of us versus all of humanity. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it, but it's certainly a thing. Yeah, it's an interesting question, at least. So, Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell and Madam Tracy, having become quite close over the past few days' chaos, decide to move in together away from the city. Which is, sure. Yeah. Be happy. Go away.
1: Yeah. I think they're just, like, not characters, like, I have a a close enough attachment to to ultimately have strong feelings about their ending in one way or another.
0: Adam and the Them are back to their old antics in Lower Tadfield. There is nothing more carefree than four best friends, their beloved dog, and a whole summer full of days just waiting to be filled up. Mm-hmm. So we've already discussed that you really enjoyed this book. Mm-hmm. I really liked it too. As as I mentioned, I've read through it several times. Yeah,
1: and I think it, this is a book that lends itself really well to rereading because while I was reading through it, I found it incredibly easy to pick up and put down but I never particularly wanted to put it down.
0: Compared to what we have been reading so far, it is a tome.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. It's like my copy of Equal Rights, I think is like 150 pages or something. It's like, it's nothing.
0: <laughs> this is a book.
1: Mm-hmm. With the trademark symbol next to it.
0: So we discussed a little bit of casting call and I don't really have a whole lot else for any of the other characters. If Newton has to be white, mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think he's very much got that right kind of vibe.
0: Like just Matrix era Keanu Reeves. Yeah.
1: Not like middle-aged Keanu Reeves, as charming as he still is. Anathema. Emma Watson's coming to mind. Mm,
0: Not bad. Constance Wu. Hmm. So, themes and morals. We've sort of covered already that the major theme is love wins, including and especially love that isn't just heterosexual romantic love or the blood of covenant, as in the bonds you make and choose is thicker than the water of the womb. Obligations of family ties.
1: Yeah, but it's like love for the world, especially.
0: Kind of, we could have done with more of Adam's uh, unknowingly adopted mom.
1: Yeah, because I don't think she's ever really comes up.
0: That's a character they, they could have done more with. True of basically every female character in this story, let's be honest. Yeah. It could have been nice to have specifically a family love subplot.
1: Yeah, especially considering that, like, Adam basically is adopted. That's, like, a kind of familial love that we really never talk about enough.
0: That's not less valid than biological relationships, if you'll pardon the double negative.
1: It's alright, that's style. We're almost at the end, so it's time for our favorite footnote. Greasy Johnson was a sad and oversized child. There's one in every school, not exactly fat, but simply huge and wearing almost the same size clothes as his father. Paper tore under his tremendous fingers, pens shattered in his grip. Children whom he tried to play with in quiet, friendly games ended up getting under his huge feet, and Greasy Johnson had become a bully almost in self-defense. After all, it was better to be called a bully, which at least implied some sort of control and desire, than to be called a big, clumsy oaf. He was the despair of the sportsmaster, because if Greasy Johnson had taken the slightest interest in sport, then the school could have been champions. But Greasy Johnson had never found a sport that suited him. He was instead secretly devoted to his collection of tropical fish, which had won him prizes. Greasy Johnson was the same age as Adam Young, due within a few hours, and his parents had never told him he was adopted. See? You were right about the babies.
0: That brings us to the end of another episode of Weird Sisters. Thank you, Liz, so much for being here with me.
1: Of course, thank you.
0: Thank you all for listening. Send your good vibes to Danny, who probably needs it wherever they are. Thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music, and to the Secret Sister for helping with the summary. And we will see you next time for Sorcery. Until then, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.